Well, today we're going to conclude our series on our core values. We had a divine intermission with Pastor Jim LaFoon, who preached two weeks ago, and then Mother's Day last weekend. Today we're going to talk about leadership development, which is the fifth of our core values. The prior three weeks to our divine intermission, we talked about evangelism and discipleship, how important it is for us to reach out beyond ourselves, and how important it is for us to follow in the very footsteps of Christ. 1 John 2.6 says, Everyone who believes in him must walk just as Jesus did. Discipleship is important. The next week we talked about family, what it means to be a family, that God not only wants you to have a wonderful natural family, but there is a spiritual family to which he has joined you. He is the Father, and that's why we are called brothers and sisters in the Lord. And then we talked about lordship, what it means to call Christ our ruler, master, the one who is the determiner of what we should do and how we should do it and what we should say and what we should believe. That he's just not our divine uh, fireman who puts out the torments of hell for us so we can be secured into heaven. But he is God Almighty and needs to be obeyed. Today we're going to talk about leadership development. These core values are important to us because they help us become us so so, so that we can do what we need to do out there. Turn with me over to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, we're going to look at chapter 1 and read a large portion of Scripture there, 1 through verse 14. Here Paul is speaking to Timothy, and he's outlining some principles that are important to our development of a foundation for what leadership development looks like. We're going to look at verse 1 and read through verse 14, 2 Timothy. Paul An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers, night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears, so that I might be filled with joy. Verse 5, for I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and discipline. Verse 8, therefore, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted in us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which... I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, verse 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Verse 14. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Lord, help us as we study. 
Today I'm going to preach in an acrostic. I don't do this very often. But an acrostic is where the points of your sermon, the first letters of each point of the words, actually make another message, a word, or something with which you are familiar. Here, each point is going to to spell with its first letter, faith, F-A-I-T-H. And indeed, we need to have faith if we're going to be leaders. Our goal in this church is not just to make you a good follower, but to make you a leader to make you a leader in your own environment. Please do not define leadership as that which is usually seen as being a iconoclastic in terms of its ecclesiastical nature, that you think leadership is best defined by being a pastor or being a missionary someplace. But not everybody, obviously, is called to do either of those. But you are called to lead wherever you are. You're called to be a leader in your home, in your workplace, in your community, at your school, You're called to lead. And in order to lead, you must be a really good follower. Refer back to the podcast on discipleship. That discipleship and believing should be synonymous. Shouldn't be any separation. In the New Testament, there was no difference between a believer and a disciple. Unfortunately, our Western Christianity has parsed out those two concepts. Those two ideas. This is number five, I'm sorry. And so we think there's a way to be a Christian and go to heaven without really being a disciple. In the New Testament, there was no difference. In fact, in both Hebrew and Greek thought, the only way you were seen to be as a believer and proven to be as a believer is if you lived it. Simply by saying it didn't change anything. They knew you believed what you believed by the way you lived. And so discipleship is extremely important. But following Christ should lead you into becoming a leader for whom others can receive help, can get assistance from your ministry. So our goal ultimately is to make you a leader in your own right. So we we start today with the first point, that in order to be a leader in this house, it's important that you have a family tie to this house. Not just a membership tie, but a family tie. Paul says to Timothy, F, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Christ Jesus, am writing to you, Timothy, as my beloved son. Paul looked at Timothy and said, you're my boy. You're not just my, my mentee. You're not just my pupil. You're my son. Now, there was no physical DNA that they shared, but there was a lot of spiritual DNA. Paul looked at Timothy as his inheritor of ministry. In fact, the entire letter here, if you continue to read, is one that is prepping Timothy to come and receive this ministry that Paul is about to give up. Paul's about to die. He realizes these are the last days of him breathing on the planet. And he says, Timothy, hurry up and come to me because I got something for you. You're the one I want to inherit my ministry. Come. Ministry is that which should be inherited, not given. I realize that people are extremely skilled. I understand that competency should be a part of any ministry service. But simply because somebody is skilled does not qualify them to be a minister here. 
they also must have the heart of why we do what we do. You have a prophet who can speak the word of the Lord. Amazing. Then he comes and says to a person, thus says the Lord, you're called to move to California. Well, see, that's not what we would do here. Sometimes being a really good prophet is knowing what not to say. Simply because you, you got information doesn't mean you need to share it. You know a lot of stuff about your children, parents, but you don't share it all. You're wise in how you disseminate information. And so we would have to share. You're gifted and you're skilled. You probably heard something. But you have no idea how to father somebody into the process of revelation whereby they can hear from their, them, themselves from God and you become the confirmation of it rather than you directing them with that word. That's dangerous because now they begin to trust in you more than they do God. And if it doesn't work out, you know who they blame? You. Amen. We want our children's ministry, our youth ministry, our women's ministry, our men's ministry, our ministry to the campuses to all have the same feel, the same sound. We're not talking about clones. I don't need anybody to be just like me. They just have to have the same DNA so that when they are ministering, the same spirit comes out because it's ministry that we have allowed them to inherit. So competency is important, but it's not the only thing by which we judge somebody's readiness for ministry here. Paul said to Timothy, I need you to come with me. Now, he not only said it there in the, the letter to, say, to Timothy, 2 Timothy, but he said it in the beginning of, of Timothy's ministry. Paul was in Lystra a place that is both infamous and famous. Lystra in Acts chapter 16 was a spot that Paul wound up in in preaching the gospel. And uh, as a result of preaching the gospel there in Lystra, the Jews killed him. They killed him. They executed him with stones, large rocks that they dropped and threw on his head. The disciples pulled him outside the city, ready to bury him. And once they get him outside the city, he goes, that was rough. Okay, let's get back to ministry. God raised him from the dead. Lystra was where Timothy was from. Now, Timothy was the son of a Greek father and a Hebrew mother. You traditionally retained your Hebrew lineage through the mother, not the father. Now, genetically, I don't think it matters, but traditionally, it does matter with the Jews. And so Timothy was a Jew, but he was a Jew only by birth not by covenant because the only way you were initiated into the covenant is if you were circumcised so he didn't just get it by birth daddy didn't believe in circumcision because he was a Greek Paul sees Timothy as he's, as he's ministering in Lystra and says I need, to, I need him Eunice who's his mama I need him to go with me he is fabulous I see a lot of potential he can do some stuff I need him to train with me Eunice says okay now, we might think that's strange because Timothy at this point is about 16, 17. But you have to understand that education back then is different than education today. Today, if we want to be trained in something, we go to school, we go to college, and then we go to master's, we get a graduate degree, and then we get a PhD or medical school, whatever it is, to get better trained. Back then, if you wanted to be a stonemason, you didn't go to school for it. You went and found a stonemason. And you dedicated yourself to them and their service. And then they began to teach you how to cut stones. And you did it so much like them that if they were not there and you cut the stone, people would have thought that the master would have cut it because you did it just like them. 
And it would be then a relationship that was not just occupational in its orientation, but it would be familial. That that man, many times, you get so close that he call you a son. Though you shared no DNA, there was a, there was a connection occupationally. Same thing if you wanted to be a, a, a seamstress or a manufacturer of cloth. How did you weave silk? How do you work with linens and wool? How do you do that? Well, you would go find a seamstress lady and you go hang out with them for two, three years until you did it so well that when you turned out a garment, they thought she did it because you mimicked what she did. Thereby, you became somewhat of a daughter to her. Paul tells Eunice, I need your boy. He's going to become like a son to me. Eunice says, okay, great. He said, but, 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 but one thing. See, Paul, when he ministered his standard operating procedure, even though he was called to reach the Gentiles, who are us, he would start from the Jewish community and that he would go into a city, find the synagogue, minister in the synagogue because those people had some foundation of who Jesus was supposed to be if they believed that he was the Messiah. They knew what a Messiah was and they knew that the Jewish people were waiting for a Messiah. And so he would minister with some degree of context to to who Jesus was, gather some disciples from the Jewish community, use that as a platform from which he would then reach the Gentile community in the city. That was his standard operating procedure. He would depart from that when he went to Athens and maybe some other places. But mostly that's what he did. Well, if he was going to reach Lystra with Timothy, it seems that his daddy, meaning Timothy's daddy, was well known in the area. And that his mama was fairly well known. And everybody knew that he was a Greek, she was a Hebrew, and that Timothy was not circumcised. So Paul said, uh, in order for me to gain credibility, and you too, in this area, Lystra, surrounding region, Timothy, we're going to have to circumcise you. Now, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, really? Where, where, where's Barnabas? Can I travel with him? Can, can, I, can I go to Jerusalem, maybe? I mean, Really? Really? This is necessary? Only for appearance sake. I don't care what people think. I do, and they will. They won't receive my ministry. They won't receive yours in the Jewish community if you aren't. No anesthesia. Oh, gosh. Oh, oh, wow. Wow. A bond was forged between these two because Paul began to cut on the most sensitive areas of Timothy's life. I don't know that there is any more productive way of forming a relational, parental, familial bond than allowing the sensitive areas of your soul to be cut on and circumcised in heart by somebody who sees your blind spots, recognizes them, and says, that won't fly with these people. You can't have that attitude when you go to minister. You can't do that. That can't be a part of your thought process. You can't speak like that. They take their scalpel out and they cut. Something happens there. Especially when the person who receives the ministry doesn't go, well, who in the world? Are you perfect? I mean, why are you talking to me? You got your flaws too. You ain't God. I can hear from God. You ain't got to tell me nothing. Why do you want to treat truth like that? Why you want to reject the voice of God simply because you don't like the package? Take the gift. I don't care if it comes in brown paper. Receive the gift. Proverbs says, a wise man loves correction. 
and that correction is a way of life, your response should be, if you're a son or a daughter, thank you, sir. May I please have another? Opening up the most sensitive places in your life and letting somebody begin to do surgery to heal you up from the stuff that would bleed through your ministry and cause people to drink from two different streams. One pure gospel, the other unsanitary lifestyle. Stuff that's polluted your stream so that nobody can really tell exactly where the gospel starts and where you begin and they're not quite sure what they're drinking from. We believe that ministry is best inherited and that family ought to be something of your makeup. So, family tie. Timothy, my beloved son, you ought to be able to look at somebody and say, they're my spiritual parent. That's my mama, that's my daddy. They don't replace the natural parents in your life, but they do help you understand what it means to be a son and daughter in the house. Now, Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 9, call no man father. Don't call anybody rabbi or teacher. But you always have to take everything that's mentioned in Scripture in context. Jesus was on his final moment in Jerusalem. And this, this passage is really infamous for how he begins to scathe the religious leaders. I mean, just pulls out a, a verbal whip and takes them to the, to the woodshed. Says, you brood of vipers. You whitewashed tombs. You grave of dead bones talks bad about him because he's ministered for three years and they still are fighting him. And in that context, he says, you all, you all put burdens upon men's souls that you won't lift a finger to help them with. Your authority is misused. And you want people to, to, to respect you all the time, but you want them to respect you before God. And I won't have that. So let's stop all this fatherhood stuff. Let's stop all this authority stuff because you're practicing it wrong. I, I pastor two churches, one here, one in my house. I got seven kids and a wife. I know what it means to raise up sons and daughters. My oldest is 24, my youngest is 12. Five boys, two girls. I know what it means to carry around a Home Depot paint stick all over the house, ready to administer God's correction at any moment <laughs> to help them understand truth that cannot be explained with my words. I also know what it means to let the leash out and then to let go. To allow kids to grow up and to come to the place where I understand that my authority is only what they give me. That I can't take it. I have to receive it. I know what it means to raise up not just kids who are moral the kids who have an inner wiring that is so filled with God that when they are not with me, their compass still points due north. Amen. I know what it means to raise up kids with my bride that understand something about carrying a legacy and holding on to values. I'm trying to raise up world changers, not just moral people. Having said that, even though I know I'm not a perfect parent, there isn't one. And I've made a bunch of mistakes. My skill set does qualify me to some degree to translate what I do in my house to my church. Thus, I know what it means to raise up people in this house and hope someday that they will take my job. That's my desire. There's no protectiveness here. I'm not trying to be territorial. 
I want somebody to do what I'm doing. Like John said, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. That would be the joy of my heart. If somebody would do this. I just don't know whether anybody wants it. Who wants to preach five times in a weekend? Who wants the burden of trying to build a $9 million building? Who wants that? Who wants all the, the struggles of trying to make sure that a congregation of 2,500 to 3,000 people are cared for and equipped? Who wants that to carry with them every night? It's kind of like Elijah with Elisha. Elisha was following Elijah. And Elijah was about to be taken up into heaven in, in 2 Kings 2. And, 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 and Elisha wouldn't leave him. And Elijah kept telling him, stay here. I'm getting ready to go. He said, no, no, I'm not going to leave you. Far be it from me if I depart from you today because I know what's happening. You're about to be taken up and I need you to do something for me. Well, what do you need done, Elisha? I need you to give me a double portion of your ministry. And what he was saying is, I've left everything in my family. I, I, I should have inherited something from my daddy, but I couldn't because I left him and I went to follow you. And as a result of following you, you don't have another inheritor of your ministry. I'm your firstborn. I deserve the double portion. I want a double portion of your ministry. Now, that all sounds good and right. And Elisha looked at him and said, okay, if you want it, you've asked for a hard thing. Do, do, you do realize that I am public enemy number one and, and Jezebel was looking to kill me for a few years. You do know that, don't you? The king and queen were looking. I was on every post office billboard. That was me. You, you, do, you do realize that for a year and a half I had to eat food from a raven that dropped it down and drink from a brook. My wife is so sanitary, she'd just rather starve. She'd never eat from a bird. And especially a raven. You know what ravens eat, don't you? Anything. Ravens you'll see picking over a carcass on 50. And they're going to bring you dinner. Ah, you want this life, really? You want this? You want a double portion of this? <laughs> okay, you got it. I'm glad to go. I don't know if anybody wants it, but we want to give it away. Give it away. So we're trying to raise up people, men and women, who can carry on the ministry family ties. Secondly, activation in ministry, A. There ought to be something on the inside that is unhypocritical in its orientation with respect to your belief. Paul says, I'm mindful of the sincere faith that's on the inside of you. And the word sincere there actually means in the Greek, unhypocritical. I'm mindful of the unhypocritical faith that's on the inside of you. Nobody in your sphere of relationships needs to ever level the accusation at you that you're a hypocrite. Yet the world says of the church all the time, hypocrites, hypocrites. Why? Because we believe one thing and do something else. You want to be a leader in this house, you're going to have to be consistent in your belief and your actions. Unhypocritical faith. You can't just come in, raise your hand, shout hallelujah, give, give folk a big hug and make it seem like you are all there and then Saturday be doing your do in the club. Now let me say something. I ain't mad at clubs. I think it's a great environment where you can find a bunch of unbelievers to preach to. Please gather them up at one time. That gives me an opportunity. Oh, I'm not talking about taking the mic and, and, and shutting down the DJ and, and making a presentation. I'm talking about making sure that that girl doesn't go home with that guy tonight. Because I'm able to send something 
and minister to her in such a way that destiny is called out and she realizes I should not debase myself tonight. That folks in the club are impacted by your life to such a degree that they leave better than when they came in. Go to the club, please, but go like that. Light in the midst of darkness. Salt where corruption lies. Stopping sin where you find it. Not with an authoritative hammer, but with love and mercy that cares about people and doesn't want to see them hurt by their lifestyle any longer. Activation in terms of making sure that your deeds and your belief system fit together perfectly. And then God's given everybody a gift. There's something on the inside of you that is beautiful that he's given to minister to others. Paul says, I want you to take that thing that was bestowed on you by the laying on of hands and I want you to kindle it, fan it into flames. Take that little ember, blow on it so that it begins to burst and affect a whole lot of people and give warmth to, to more than just you. Do you know that your gift is not that which is intended for you to enjoy all by yourself? This is not your personal Christmas. Your gift, according to 1 Corinthians 12 is that which is to be benefiting the entire body. The Holy Spirit distributes gifts as he wills for the benefit of the body, it says. 1 Corinthians 1 through 7. For the body. So if you have a gift of healing, you might need it for yourself if you're sick. But you are given it so that you can see other people well. You got a gift of faith? Okay, move your mountains. But you need to help other people move there. God gives you a gift so that you can use it for somebody else, not for you. So Paul says this, boy, activate that thing. Let's get it going. Let's fan it into flames. Let's kindle it afresh so that you can have an impact on the world. Your ministry gift needs to be utilized if you want to be a leader. Thirdly, you need to identify with the sufferer. Now, this is probably as deep as it will ever get on a Sunday morning here. But we're going to go someplace. He said, first of all, you need to, to not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. You, you, need to, you need to, at very inconvenient moments, show your spiritual family to somebody. You're sitting on a plane. You get into small talk. Find out how many kids they got. What's the first thing they do? They pull out their phone. Used to be one of these plastic things that fit in the wallet and you could just unfold it. But now they pull out their phone. And, and what do they show you? All their kids, their wife. What do you do? Same thing. You got your kids on your phone. You show them, oh, it's beautiful. When do you pull out Jesus? When, are, you, are you ashamed of him but not of your own? When do you pull out Jesus and show him? Don't be ashamed. Let them know. Identify with Christ. Go ahead and be confused as one of those Jesus freaks. Let your reputation be changed in their mind because you so identify with who Jesus is that you would rather his affirmation than theirs. Identify with him. Pick up your cross daily and follow. When you became a believer, you died. Your life is no longer your own. It's been hidden with Christ and God and you need to live for him with all of your life. Identify with Christ in his suffering. Secondly, Paul says, and don't be ashamed of me either. And come with me in this suffering. 
fellowship with me in this, join with me in this suffering, in my imprisonment. Now, Paul was in prison. It's an imprisonment out of which he would not get. Now, I got to explain something about Paul to, 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 to understand why Paul was telling Timothy to join with me. Because anytime that Paul says something like that, he's inviting something, somebody to do something they're not doing. And he says it a couple of three times there in 2 Timothy. He says, join with me. Don't be ashamed of my bonds. Why? Because there's some shame in Paul's bonds. And let me give you some history. Paul was fearless. He cared little for his own life. And so when it came to to moments where people would say, please don't go there. They're going to get you. He said, that's okay. I don't mind. I'm dead. In Acts chapter 21... They were in Caesarea at Philip's home. Philip was one of the deacons uh, in the early church. And, and Philip was a, a powerful man. He had four daughters, all of whom were prophetesses. And they were having a small group meeting in Philip's home. And uh, Agabus comes in, and Agabus is a prophet. He had prophesied earlier about a famine in Jerusalem. And he comes in, and he sees Paul. And in the middle of a small group meeting... Agabus does this. I got a word from God. He, see, he crosses his hands like this, takes a belt from around his waist, wraps his hands up with the belt, and he says, I see the man going to Jerusalem like this. And they will treat him ill, and he will be beaten. Now, this was for Paul, because Paul was going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not a friendly place for Paul. Last time he was there, the church had to get him out of Dodge in a hurry, or the people in Jerusalem were going to kill him. And he realized, if I go back, probably the same thing's going to happen. Well, this prophetic word comes in church, and everybody's concerned about Paul going to Jerusalem. But then the prophetic word comes. And you can imagine what the church is thinking. Whew, the Lord has given a warning. Thank you. Oh, finally, we have some insight before Paul gets into trouble about what he might get into. And so, Paul, you've heard from God. You know there are other people you can minister to that won't kill you. They'll really like what you have to say. You can go to another city. Isn't this great? To which Paul says at Agabus' prophecy, so? (laughs) I appreciate the concern and I appreciate you hearing God on my behalf, but he says, all you've done is tune your radio to the frequency that I get every day. The Holy Spirit warns me that every place I go, I'm going to get the tar beat out of me. That's all he tells me. So this is no different. So I'm going anyway. Now at that, since this was Paul's modus operandi, everybody would have a tendency to think, Paul just doesn't use a lot of wisdom. I mean, he didn't just go alone. He went with his staff. So can you imagine if I get a word that says, don't go here, they're going to beat you and try to kill you. And then I say, come on, Jim. Come on, Lou, Pastor Duke, Tiffany, Rob. We're going together. They'd have to think, you know, I'm just wondering if God has someplace else for me to serve today. I I, I love you, Pastor, but I I got a family. I I, I got, really? Do we have to do this? But what about my, what? What? How am I? Paul would just go anyway. And after a while, we believe that people began to call him unwise and that he put everybody in jeopardy. At that point, 
Timothy would then begin to see what he did and, and almost say, gosh, we told him not to do it. He got what he deserved. Like, do I have, I shouldn't have to, do I really need to identify it? This, this wasn't, this, really? And he distanced himself. And Paul would then say, could you come home, boy? I'm still your daddy. I'm still your daddy. I'm going to speak out of experience and theology at this point. I know what it means to identify with people in trouble. My life can never be compared to what Paul went through or Timothy or my friends. We've never been incarcerated for the testimony of the gospel. But I know what it means to stand with friends when they are being castigated, when they made a mistake yet repented, and the people on whom they've made mistakes or the environment that they have messed up as a result of their unwise acts is now livid and trying to find somebody to lynch. And I know what it means to stand with them, saying, God, I'm not going to let them fall. I'm not going to let them be abandoned. And then to have the same accusation leveled at me that was leveled at them simply because I'm identified with them and my reputation be destroyed. I know what that means. In some circles in the body of Christ, your pastor is looked at as having horns only because I identified with people who were in trouble. Both those who made unwise decisions and not sin and those who blew it and needed to be restored. I stood with them. And I'm not saying this for you to laud me. I'm not saying it so that somehow it seems like a backhanded comment whereby you might now stand with me because I'm giving you an exhortation to do so. Don't need it. I'm saying it to let you know that this leadership believes in standing with people in trouble. And when you are in trouble, we will not abandon you. We will stand with you. Now, if you choose to be a rebel and continue in your trouble, we'll have to stand with you from a distance. We will love you, but we can't continue to get involved with your junk. But if you repent, we are there in a minute to help you get restored in a hurry. We will not abandon you. And I do not care if my reputation goes down the tubes. Because reputation is something that is here today and gone tomorrow. Folk will love me today and, and hate me tomorrow. And everybody wants to be liked. I got that. But in comparison to the well done I need to hear as a result of knowing what it means to stand with people in trouble and my God commending me for my courage to make sure that I did not let his people fall, I would rather hear that kind of affirmation than a torrent of people that would give me praise. I've lived this way. And this is what you feel on the inside of this congregation because we care not for our lives. That's the intangible that you sniff when you come in here every day. We pick up our cross and we pick up everybody else's. Paul said, suffer with me. Don't distance yourself now. Get close. Fourth, he says, tend treasure. It's important that we take the stuff that God has placed on the inside of us by the Holy Spirit and we care for it. Anything that's valuable, somebody else wants. That's why we have guards at Fort Knox. 
That's why we have locks on banks. That's why we put our money in vaults and safety deposit boxes. Because anything that's valuable, somebody else wants. And there are few things more valuable than your calling. There are few things more valuable than the the value system by which you live your life. And this is why I preach this every year. Different passages from which I preach. But every year I preach our core values. Because this is, a, this is a treasure that God has given us that helps us retain the DNA that is specific to what we are called to do. Whatever God has given you, you better guard it because the enemy wants to steal it. He wants to take your calling. He wants to take your values. He wants to take your sense of well-being, your identity. All those things which God builds, you better guard it. You better put a century around it. You better pray over it on a regular basis. You better hold on to it because it is so valuable to your purpose. And it's valuable for your kids. It's valuable for your friends. Because if you lose it, you got nothing to give. Tend your treasure. This pastoral staff tends this treasure called the church. We pray for every person who is a member of this church annually. We can't pray for you monthly because there are too many people. That's all we do. But every week, we pray for 30 people at a time. And by the end of the year, we hit the whole congregation. 30 people at a time. We believe in covering you. We tend over this church with the best teaching we can get. There may be other places you can get it better. But this is the best we can do. We tend over you by equipping you training you to be a disciple who can get stuff from God and minister in your own environment without having to say, Pastor Brett, can you come with me and talk to these people, please? Lastly, we hold on to stuff. H. Paul tells Timothy, retain the standard of sound words which you've heard and do it in the environment of faith and love. We need to hold on to the word of God. You don't let it go. There are some things you just keep. Some things you do retain. You don't let go. This is why I tell you on a regular basis, you need to get in your Bible every day. You need to read your Bible every day because then you'll have more to hold on to. Retain the standard of sound words which have been spoken to you and do it in faith and love. Not only do we need to have good theology, but we need to make sure that it's always drawn through the matrix of love. Some of the meanest people I know are some of the smartest theologians. They could talk circles around me. I know my theology. I'm rusty on some of the terms because it's been 20 years since I've been in seminary. But I know my theology. I don't make many mistakes. The concepts that I sit down with, with some folk who who live in the environment are just studying the Bible for the purpose of educating the most educated, and they deal with concepts and and societal norms and how to insert the scriptures in, and that's all they do all day long is read eight hours a day on topics and and integrating. It's just wonderful. I appreciate them. They're brilliant, absolutely brilliant. But when they talk to me sometimes, they're trying to talk down to me and talk me down. They're trying to prove their point because they are so trusting in their own sense of intellect for them to feel valued and stroked and worthy that they've forgotten that relational connection is just as important as theology 
and, and, and good orthodoxy. And this is why it's, it's said of Jesus in, in John chapter 1, verse 14, in him, grace and truth kissed one another. There ought to be something of love that's brought through because if, if you do not have love, then this wonderful sharp edge of scripture that you have can be turned quickly from a scalpel to a sword. And you can become a warrior against your own family rather than a surgeon extracting a cancer that's going to kill the person. Both of them sharp edges. Two different mentalities in how to treat the person. We need to be people that are theologically correct but don't want to fight everybody all the time about how right we are. We want to love people. And Paul said it like this. You can have all the right words, but if you do not have love, you are a clanging gong and a a sounding cymbal. You are nothing more than noise. Because love is the greatest motivation. It is the thing through which everything we do needs to be brought. So you can be right. But without love, you will be all wrong. Make sure you have good theology. But bring it through the matrix of love so that people know you care and they can feel the heart of God in your truth. Five things. Family tie, F. Activation in ministry, A. Identification with the sufferer, I. Tending treasure, T. Holding on to the word, H. You're going to be a leader in this house. You're going to have to have faith like this. Let's pray. Daddy, we love you. We thank you so much for your goodness. It's my prayer that you would empower and bless everybody here today.